Hello, it's Brian Bannister, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And welcome in. It's another edition of Clubhouse Conversation where we're joined today by Brian Bannister, who makes up half of one of three father-son combinations in Royals history. Of course, there was Hal and Brian McRae. There was John and Dusty Wathen. And there was Floyd and Brian Bannister. Floyd pitched for the Royals in 1988 and 1989. And then Brian during the 2007 to 2010 seasons. And Banny, as we affectionately know him, joins us right now on Clubhouse Conversation. How's everything going in Phoenix? great family. I've uh, been blessed with a wonderful wife that I met at USC, and uh, we we're going to be celebrating our 10-year wedding anniversary in November. And uh, I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son who has just recently shown a huge interest in baseball, so <laughs> he's wearing me out as far as getting batting practice thrown to him every day. But uh, I, I can't complain with how life's going. Yeah, I saw the, the, the photo of him on your, on your Twitter. By the way, it's at Real Banny, right? Is that correct? That's the right name, right? At Real Banny. I never wanted to be Real Banny, uh, but every single version of my name, my number, and even the Twitter handle, The Real Banny, was taken. Really? And so it's, I got stuck with Real Banny. Okay, well, I, I enjoyed the, the photo of your, of your son hitting there on the, the, the wiffle ball the other day, right? Off, off the tee? He's, he's loving it. I took him to a high school baseball game at our local high school, and he wanted to have nothing to do with the game. They left the tee out in a bucket of balls, and he hit off the tee for over an hour. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so you're also doing the, the photography business the, uh, these days too, right? So the photography business was what I started with my signing bonus right out of USC in 2003. Uh, so I kind of took my $50,000 uh, after taxes, and I started my business. Uh, my first year with the Mets in Brooklyn, I was making $250 every two weeks. <laughs> And I knew that I wanted to get married at some point. I knew that I actually wanted to uh, have a place to live. And $250 every two weeks doesn't really go that far. So I, I started that business. I ran it until uh, I made the big league club with the Mets in 2006. I sold it to my father, Floyd. And uh, he runs it full time now. Uh, but I'm always down there uh, doing projects for myself or helping him out if he needs uh, some help on a big job. Where did that passion come from? Was that, was that something you got from Floyd early on? I did get it from Floyd. He always had a camera around the house. He was always uh, messing with something on the computer, and I kind of just got that love from him. He always said if he hadn't played in the major leagues that he would have been a car mechanic in Seattle. He just loved working on cars. And my grandfather, a completely blue-collar guy, worked on the railroad and worked for Boeing up in Seattle for many, many years. Uh, I think he passed that mechanical love on to my dad, and my dad passed it on to me. Huh. Very cool. We're talking to Brian Bannister right now on Clubhouse Conversation. So talking of the current Royals, uh, how much do you get to watch them these days? I mean, obviously you've got the MLB uh, extra innings and all that. Do you get to see quite a few games? You know, I, I try and watch, I try and watch uh, games all around the league and balance it out, but I definitely always keep an eye on the Royals and an eye on the Mets if those are my two teams. And uh, it's, it's been a tough year so far already, but 
uh, I really root for them. I'm, I'm the biggest Royals fan in the world just because so much of my life uh, has been involved with the Royals, and uh, I always want to see them have success. Now, have you ever thought about returning to pro ball you know, in some capacity, maybe when your kids get older someday, you know, as a coach or a broadcaster or an analyst? Because you're quite the stat guy and quite the baseball you know, knowledge guy. Have you thought about that in the future? So I actually auditioned for the new Fox Sports 1 baseball show this year. Oh, great. Um, you know, they went with Frank Thomas and Eric Karos and Gabe Kapler and uh, CJ Nikowski. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. I uh, tried out for that. And... Um, I haven't been operating on the radio, and usually that's something, as you know, that you work your way up. You build up a portfolio. People recognize your voice, and uh, it's, it's a career in itself. Um, but I love being an analyst. I love talking the game. Uh, as much as I like stats, I don't always have to talk stats. I love just the stories. I love the people, the human element of the game. And there's just a lot of fun stuff that happens behind the scenes that I think is very interesting to the average fan. That um, doesn't always get talked about. It's, it's fun to have the player's perspective along with uh, the analyst's perspective. Now, speaking of stats and kind of the sapermetric stuff, we'll come back to that. I've got some interesting questions. I want to put you on the hot seat here a little bit later. But l- let's go way back right now for a little bit here. You would have been, what, seven and eight years old back in 88 and 89 when uh, Floyd was pitching here uh, for the Royals. So what do you remember, you know, when you were seven and eight years old about being in Kansas City, both on the field and off the field? Uh, the first thing was it was a turf field. Uh, so Trevor, the groundskeeper at, at Kaufman, uh, had a much different job than he does nowadays. Uh, I remember the turf. Uh, it was a privilege because uh, one of my all-time favorite players, Bo Jackson, was on the team, uh, along with George Brett. So between those two, uh, it was amazing to go to those games. And then I also loved watching the pitchers specifically. And so we had Saberhagen and Guvazaw and Quisenberry. So I loved watching those guys. And those were some of their best years right there in the late 80s. Um, so I knew, I knew the families really well. I remember hanging out with Quisenberry's kids, uh, Saberhagen's kids. Uh, we lived right off 103rd Street in Overland Park, which most Kansas City people will know exactly where that is. And it was just a great time. The team was great. Uh, the 80s were a fun time to be a Royals fan. And so I feel very blessed to have spent part of my early life uh, around the team. And I just spent as much time as I could at the field and in the clubhouse, uh, specifically watching Bo, but then also watching those amazing guys pitch. And uh, it was a lot of fun to be uh, a Royals fan. Did you ever make it to uh, Worlds of Fun growing up or anything fun like that? Oh, yeah. Worlds of Fun. Uh, I'm trying to think what else we always used to do. You know, there's just uh, – it gets hot in Kansas City in the summer, so yeah. I remember going – to the local pools with all the, the players' kids and, uh, you know, hanging out in the malls. Uh, you know, Bannister Mall wasn't <laughs> as run down yeah, right. as it is now. Uh, so we always used to joke as we drove by that as kids uh, that our name was up there. Um, so just, just a ton of good memories, lots of good families, lots of barbecues. Um, just everything that's great about Kansas City. So as you moved on and grew older, did you kind of follow the Royals, you know, growing up in high school and, and even into college? Yes, d- definitely kept track of the Royals. You know, it was, it was tough starting in the mid-'90s. Um, you know, obviously they didn't have the success they did in the 80s. A lot of the, the players that had made the team famous uh, retired. So I always loved Apier. I always loved a handful of guys on the Royals and would always watch them. Sweeney was 
the big stud uh, around the turn of the century. And I just always, you know, kept my eye on them. I, did, I didn't really know why, um, just because my dad had played for so many teams. But I always had a soft spot in my heart for the Royals, and so I always did cheer for them. So you went to USC, you pitched there, you helped them win uh, two Pac-10 championships, plus you were a first-team academic All-American. So what were you studying in college? Were you doing the photography thing or, or something you know, more brilliant than that? So my, my story with USC is that I wanted to go there. I, di- I didn't even know if I was going to make the baseball team. You know, I was very small in high school, wasn't a very good athlete. Uh, I grew up around baseball, playing baseball with my dad, but I was never anything special uh, physically. And so I figured I was going to go and try and make it into the film program there, do cinematography, because they had the best film school in the country. And if I made the baseball team, that was going to be a bonus. Uh, So I went there, talked with the baseball coaches. They were willing to let me try out. Didn't know if I was going to make the team. The problem was they said if I made the baseball team, I couldn't do the film school because you weren't allowed to do both. And so I ended up making the baseball team in the fall. I tried out. I wanted to be a second baseman, but I was too slow, too small. And so they asked if I could pitch. I said, sure. And I remember I topped out at 85 miles an hour. That was the hardest fastball I threw that day. And I was sitting about 83 miles an hour. But, you know, they just figured, oh, we'll keep him around. Who knows what it'll turn into. And I went into the art school and ended up studying photography because that was the next closest thing to cinematography. And my body finally kicked in the gear by sophomore year, and I was breaking 90 miles an hour, and I got to close for Mark Pryor and watch him pitch and have a great college career and uh, then be the number two overall pick. And so that was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. But I, I was never anything special at any level of baseball that I played at. Uh, I actually had the most success in pro ball uh, versus most guys who had most of their success at the earlier levels of the game. Huh. So you were drafted in the seventh round of the 03 draft uh, by the Mets. What are your favorite memories when you think back to that draft day, you know, here 11 years later? And, and, and did you kind of get drafted where you thought you would? I thought I was going to go a lot lower. I can remember sitting with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, listening to the Internet and just watching the names be called out. And after having played with Mark Pryor and so many good players, I was actually the first guy picked off the USC team that year, which completely surprised me because we had several Americans. And the scout that drafted me, it was his first year ever scouting professionally. He had been a high school baseball coach in Orange County, and it was his first time scouting for the Mets. And I remember going out to lunch with him before the draft, and we had a great time. And just like now, all I like to do is talk baseball. I grew up in the game. I have a passion for the game. I love the stories. I love everything about it. And he really just kind of keyed in on that. And I'll never forget because after the draft and after we finished all our negotiations, he told me, you know, the reason I drafted you is because I liked you as a person. <laughs> you, were, you were okay on the baseball field, but I just felt like there was something different about you that was going to let you have success. And so I was his first pick ever, and uh, I'll never forget him. And uh, it was a great moment for me. And just uh, I, felt, I felt appreciated. And the Mets really gave me a chance. Yeah, for sure. You pitched four years in their system, including a little more than a cup of coffee. I think you had, what, eight starts there in in 2006. And one cool thing I want to talk about, 
is your first big league start with the Mets. So you throw five and a third hitless innings, which uh, at, the, at the time, at least, was the longest in Mets history for an MLB uh, debut. That first day in the big leagues when you were rolling right along, what do you remember about that? Or, or do you remember anything? Was it just one of those things that you hardly even you know remember? I remember I couldn't feel my legs because it was snowing that day. <laughs> and I'm an Arizona kid, and then I played college ball in Southern California. That is not the ideal weather for a guy like me. I had never pitched in the snow before, and it was cold with the wind chill. It was down in the teens. Uh, but I went out there, and my the first hitter I faced hit a swinging bunt, and it just was a little dribbler up the third baseline. And I remember charging it as fast as I could, grabbing the ball barehanded, turning, and without even really looking, throw, I threw it as hard as I could to first base. And I had Carlos Delgado, the big slugger, standing over there, and I short hopped him horribly. And somehow he picked that, and we barely got the runner at first. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have thrown it straight down the right field line to start off my big league career. And I was so thankful that he caught that ball. And I went on to take a no-hitter in the sixth inning. But it all goes back to Delgado in the first, or it would have been ugly from the start. Yeah. Uh, okay, so after that year then, after 2006, uh, you were traded to the Royals for the infamous Ambiorix Burgos. Uh, what were your initial thoughts on being traded to KC, and, and were you shocked uh, when you found that news out? I was really excited about being traded to KC because I knew I was going to get an opportunity. You know, if you play for a New York team and you're in the system, you kind of just accept the fact that they're going to be able to go out and get free agent pitching whenever they want. It's kind of the culture. And several key things happened where I got a chance to go up to the big leagues. One, I did pitch well, but they traded Scott Kazmir away in front of me and Pedro Martinez also was dealing with a toe injury in 2006, and I kind of took over his spot until his toe got better. So that first month, I really made the team just because of some good fortune, along with the fact that I did pitch well in spring training. Uh, But then they also had two first-round draft picks behind me in uh, Mike Pelfrey, who pitches for the Twins right now, and Phil Humber, who also pitched for the Royals and threw a no-hitter in the big leagues. So they felt like they had a couple guys coming up through the system behind me. Uh, John Main had had success. He had come up and replaced me after I got hurt. And so there were a lot of guys in the mix, and I think they felt like I was expendable. Uh, But I was really excited to go to Kansas City um, and be a part of the rotation. Did you hit it off with uh, with Dayton and Buddy Bell right away? And and what do you remember them telling you when you first came over? I I hit it off with Dayton right away. Um, I really felt like Dayton and I always had a similar mentality about the game, um, about how to treat people, about respecting the game and its traditions and its cultures. And so I always felt like uh, him and I were on the same page. Uh, Buddy had known my father, and so that was a nice way to just start that relationship. And I always felt like I got along with him. You're good managers in the big leagues. They don't really get... uh, pardon the pun, but buddy-buddy with you, right. and they keep, their, they keep their distance. But as long as they respect you and you respect them, it works really well. It's a good reciprocal relationship. And uh, I, I had no problems going in there, and I felt like I know what they wanted me to do, and I went out there and tried to do the best that I could. Well, you had a great year in 2007. You finished uh, second among AL rookie pitchers and wins, fourth in ERA. So that first year in Kansas City, what sticks out about that season? So that season, I started out in the minor leagues. Um, I had been I had been hurt with the Mets the year before, and so I uh, came in, didn't have a great spring, and started out in Omaha. 
but then came up, and I just remember going out that first start against the White Sox, and I'll never forget it because uh, Paul Canerico was kind of my high school hero. He went to my high school, and he was a legend in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I grew up. And it was so weird to face him in my first start with the Royals. And then also the first hitter of that game that I faced, uh, I remember throwing a pitch, they hit a fly ball to left field, and I was like, phew, I got the first out. And all of a sudden, the guy was standing on first base, and I, I couldn't figure out what happened, and it had been catcher's interference. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, no, you know, don't, don't start out on a bad note. Uh, but I did okay that game and then went on, you know, as I consider I had a fortunate year. Um, I don't have great stuff. I never had great stuff. And I was still learning how to pitch at the big league level because I'd only had a few starts at the Mets. And so I was beginning my education of what it takes to be a major league pitcher, especially being a guy with not a lot of physical talent, you know, not a good arm, uh, but really just trying to squeeze the most out of my ability and uh, be a productive pitcher for the Royals. Following that 2007 season, uh, Buddy Bell was let go. So kind of going what you said about you don't get too close to the manager, you just kind of respect them both ways and it works out pretty well. Does it matter, like, as a pitcher versus a hitter, like the position players, do you feel like the position players might be closer to a manager in some situations and a, a transition may be tougher in a position player versus a pitcher, or does it not really matter? I, I tend to think that the, that the position players are closer with a manager yeah. just because a manager tends to have been a position player, and I think there's kind of that unspoken alliance between the two sides. Uh, I think they relate a little bit better. I, I think the best managers tend to be catchers just because they understand both sides of the game. But it seems like the managers are always out there working with the infielders, working with the outfielders, focusing on the, the hitting matchups, constructing the lineup. And uh, the pitchers are kind of just the pitching coach's responsibility. So I, I always feel like the managers are a little closer to the hitters. Okay, so 2008, you started the year on fire. Your first three starts, I remember them well. It was a 21 innings, ERA under one, like 0.87. But then shortly after, uh, you struggled a bit that year, especially on the road. Um, now, you've always been a man of stats, like we kind of talked about, advanced metrics, all that. So was that around the time in 2008 when you began using that stuff to try to figure out the struggles, or had you always kind of done that and, you know, that was had nothing to do with that? You know, the biggest thing for me, and, and this is a, the huge difference that, I mean, one of many things that they don't talk about when you go from the minor leagues to major leagues. In the minor leagues, I had a lot of success because, one, I did have good body control and good hand-eye coordination, and I could really locate my pitches where I wanted to. Uh, but in the minor leagues, you were able to do something that the Braves used to do in the 90s, which was they called it expanding the zone. So you watch Maddox pitch, you watch Glavin pitch. They'd really earn the respect of the umpire and locate their fastball one or two inches off the plate. For me, I threw a cutter most of the time, so I would locate my cutter one or two inches off the plate, and over time, the umpire would give it to me. So if you look at my minor league numbers, my strikeout rates were a lot higher, not just because the hitters were inferior to major league hitters, but I really felt like I got a little bit more off the plate than I got in the big leagues. And when I got to the big leagues, that kind of disappeared, and so a big part of my pitching approach vanished along with that because I just wasn't getting the strikeouts that I got in the minor leagues. And so really I had to change how I pitched because I had to pitch more in the zone. And being a fly ball pitcher, not having a sinker, uh, pitching mainly with a cutter, 
it was really just a struggle for me to get the major league hitters out because the difference in quality between a major league hitter who was the best of the best of the best of the minor leagues and you're facing all of those guys in a row in a major league lineup, uh, it, it's just a lot tougher to pitch. And I had, because I had to pitch more over the plate, I really just wasn't as effective. And so for me, I was searching a little bit about what kind of approach I needed to be as successful as possible for the Royals in the big leagues. And so it wasn't me um, overthinking things or looking at stats too much. Um, I really, if you, I mean, if you just objectively look at me, you know, the quality of my pitches were not at the same level of most of the guys uh, in the big leagues. You know, and I, I'm very honest and candid about what kind of stuff I had. Um, I, I always believe I really had like an A ball or a double A arm. Uh, but I pushed myself to be the best I could be and to learn the game as much as possible and to push my performance up to a big league level. And so for me, the struggle was always if I locate that night, I can be a major league average pitcher. But if I'm off a little bit or my stuff's not working or if I'm just not 100% healthy, uh, it, it was really a struggle for me just because I wasn't blessed with that 95-mile-an-hour fastball or that really, really hard-breaking stuff, or the ability to throw a split finger, or some kind of pitch with random movement uh, that could really go out there and fool guys. And so, you know, just being honest with myself and going out there, I was trying to get more strikeouts, I was trying to be a better pitcher, and it was really just a tough year because I I couldn't find a good balance between uh, pitching in the strike zone and still getting the swings and misses necessary to be a big league pitcher and and have success. You mentioned the umpires obviously being different versus the minor leagues and at the major league level. Was 2007 versus 2008, was some of that too, that whole old story of first, second, third time through the league and people not knowing exactly what you're going to do? Did you feel like the advanced scouting and the hitters knowing you better might have been some of that in 2008 too? Yeah, I think it's definitely part of it. And, and for me, uh, you know, I didn't want to be that fluky pitcher where, you know, I just got lucky for a season. I, I, I really felt like I wanted to earn – what I did out there on the mound um, and, and basically build a pitch mix and a repertoire that was going to be successful for the long term. Uh, you could just look at my stuff and what the hitters were doing off me, and, and as they saw me more and they started to figure me out more, I, I knew that I wasn't going to have the same level of success that I had in 2007. And so I wasn't overthinking it, but I could see the hitters start to take away my cutter I could start to see them sitting in certain locations that I like to pitch to, and that's just what made 2008 a lot tougher. And I, I knew that I really needed to develop something extra that was a little more swing and miss or a little bit more uh, of a ground ball tendency in order to stay successful at the big league level and have a longer career. A couple of questions here since we're kind of on the, on the topic of, of stats and sabermetrics and all that kind of stuff. So one thing that I'll go to the grave believing is that there is – such a thing as, as clutch hitting, even though you know a lot of people say it's, it's sample size, there's not really you know, a clutch hitting. So in your thoughts, true or false here, is there such a thing as clutch hitting, or is that kind of made up? You know, one thing that I definitely believe in, and I know it because I've been around some of the great hitters in the game, there's good hitters that set up pitchers. And so what they'll do in their first or second at bat when nobody's on base is completely different from the approach they'll have later in the game in their third or fourth at bat when the game's on the line. And so I think what the clutch comes from is the hitter's ability to set up the pitcher as far as 
kind of lure him into throwing a certain pitch in a big situation. Maybe because they swung and missed that one earlier in the game, whether it's a certain breaking ball or a changeup, and, and looked bad on it. I've, I've seen guys purposely look bad on a pitch and then just sit on it for the rest of the game. So I think the good hitters have the ability to mentally get a pitcher confident in a certain pitch or a certain location and then take that away from the pitcher later in the game. So I understand the sample size argument, but I also think that a good hitter does have a way of changing something about his approach in order to have a slight advantage against the pitcher later in the game. The answer to this is probably no, but you mentioned a hitter will kind of you know set a pitcher up and maybe look bad on a, on a certain pitch to get that later. Do hitters ever actually give it bats away? I'm assuming that's a no. It's just a pitch thing, but do they? I don't think they give it away. Um, you know, I think a good hitter is able to swing through a pitch in an early at-bat and still work a walk out of it. No hitter goes up there wanting to get out, um, but I think every good hitter knows that they make their money with runners on base and driving in runs or knocking an extra base hit when it really counts. Um, there's a lot of hitters that make a living by hitting a single when it doesn't really matter or you know, hitting that solo home run when the team's already down by seven runs off of one of the mediocre middle relievers. There's a lot of guys like that around, but I think the good hitters really know how to turn it up a notch when the game is really on the line and when they can really make a difference. I definitely think there's a quality to that. True or false, a manager should always go with the numbers and not the gut feelings, even if it's a small sample size of five or six at-bats against somebody. I think when you say gut feeling, a good manager, the way that he won't, he won't necessarily explain that to the media, but when I, when I hear gut feeling, a good manager will know if a guy is actually hurt, if a guy, if there's something else bothering him, you know, his wife's pregnant and struggling with the pregnancy, or uh, his grandmother just passed away. You know, there's all kinds of things that you don't hear about as a fan or as a reporter that might be going on in the player's head. And I think a good manager will override the probabilities if he knows that the player's not mentally all the way there. But otherwise, I, I don't think you should go against the probabilities. If you're playing blackjack, you go with the probabilities. It's just the way the game is played, and I think a good manager needs to do that, except in the case where the player mentally can't perform at the level that those probabilities say he should. Huh. One more true or false question along the same line. So bunting in the American League that should never be done before the seventh or eighth inning and only with a runner at second. You should never bunt a guy to second in the American League. True or false? You know, I think it depends on who's at the plate. I, I, I really hate bunting. I mean, I do. Um, I think there's some guys that tend to choke a little bit in a big situation, especially against a top reliever. Uh, if the guy's got swing and miss uh, stuff, Maybe bunting is the better option. Um, in, in general, though, I'm, a, I'm against bunting. I, I hate giving away outs. Um, but I think there are certain situations where if you're just going to give away in a bat and you kind of know it, you might as well move a runner a base. And so I think that's an exception. You've got to know your lineup. A, a good lineup, you won't do that. But if your lineup is struggling to score runs, I think you might have to. 
Now, speaking, we talked about sample size here. Let's get back on track to 2009 now. So speaking of sample size, so we're starting to see by 2009 that you're just dominating teams during the day in comparison to night games. So even to this day, do you have any idea why the heck you were so much better the majority of the time during the day than night? I really still don't know. Um, I, I do know that the ball felt better to me during the day, whether that was because, you know, I it was hot and I my body was loose and I was sweating a little bit more and the ball felt better. You know, whatever the reason, uh, I really enjoyed being out there during the day. I, I enjoyed waking up, eating breakfast, going to the park, and pitching. And then it was already over with, and I could hang out with my wife later in the evening. I just, I liked that rhythm. Um, maybe my body was more alert. <laughs> but I don't think I'll ever truly know. Um, I think some people are more night owls. I think I just honestly felt better during the day and had more success. And I'm, I'm glad I at least had success during the day in my career uh, because it was always a boost and when teams played me they knew I was good during the day and I don't think they liked that because I don't think most guys like playing during the day is it harder to see the ball for a hitter do you feel like that much more during the day or does it not matter you know it's strange because if you think about the lighting conditions at night you really only see the top half of the ball as a hitter just because the stadium lights are the only thing illuminating it so you would think that seeing the whole ball would actually help a hitter, but I think the glare that's out there and guys having to squint and or wear sunglasses, I, I think most guys would prefer to hit at night, even though really the lighting conditions aren't as optimal for actually seeing the ball. And how about uh, you hear people talking all the time about the shadows? So at Kauffman Stadium, you know, or if you're on the road, you have a 3 o'clock game about 5.30 in those last couple innings, the pitchers in the sunlight and the catchers in the, in the shade. Is, is that truly a, as big of an advantage as people say for the pitcher in, the, in those situations? I, I think it is, especially if you have certain types of pitches. If you have a split finger or a Vulcan or knuckleball or anything like that, I think, I think it's nasty for a hitter to try to hit in those conditions. Uh, the park that always stands out is Milwaukee. Just the uh, crazy reflections through the windows. Uh, it, it just draws almost a grid of shadows on the field. And it's a, it's a horrible view for a hitter. And it's, it's kind of disorienting for a pitcher as well. Um, but I think there is something to it. Um, I think sun in the eyes is a lot worse if the sun is setting behind the pitcher. Uh, but shadows are definitely... They don't help a hitter in any way because you're definitely rapidly adjusting your eyes from a bright sunlight to a dark shadow, and there's just no easy way to do that with a pitch moving that fast. The 2009 season ended with you having some shoulder fatigue, and uh, you weren't 100% healthy in 2010 either. So following that season, uh, you decided to hang them up, uh, never pitching in professional baseball again, as far as I can tell. So what made you decide to walk away at the age of 30 and not try hanging around a bit longer, either in the show or AAA or the indie ball leagues like some people do? You know, it was kind of a weird situation because uh, I was really pitching well in 2009. Uh, if you remember the trade deadline that year, um, there was talk about me being traded to the Yankees or you know, just all kinds of mm -hmm. speculation because I was actually pitching pretty well. I think I was in the American League top 10 in the array at the time. Um, you know, my, my, I had added a changeup to my pitch mix, and it was really doing well. Um, and so ironically, my next outing after the trade deadline was, was in Tampa, and I went on through seven shutout innings. And 
I'll never forget because I woke up that next morning in the Tampa hotel and my shoulder, there was a ton of pain in my shoulder and I couldn't even raise it. I couldn't raise my hand above my shoulder and I knew something was really wrong because I had never felt that way before. And I really didn't know what had happened because I hadn't really felt anything pop or snap or uh, just like searing pain the night before. And I remember telling Bob McCor, our pitching coach, I just said, I, you know, I think something's wrong. Like my shoulder has never felt this way. And it was kind of a scary feeling because it was, it was a hot burning sensation. And so we actually skipped my bullpen session in between starts. And I went out there and I had had a three, I was, I had a three, five ERA at the time. I was really pitching well. And I went out there and the next start, my cutter wasn't cutting at all. And I was kind of like, Oh, you know, what's happening. And I went out and I think I lost my next five starts in a row. So I got, I had gone from pitching really, really well to waking up in Tampa. And I, I couldn't lift my hand over my shoulder and all of a sudden, I couldn't get anybody out. If you if you look at the games that August before they shut me down, I mean, I, I literally just fell apart. And so after the third loss, um, they, they did an arthrogram on my shoulder. And when the results came back, it was pretty devastating. They said I had a major tear in my rotator cuff. I mean, not just a little one, but a major one. And uh, they said you really, really need to have surgery. And so, you know, when you hear rotator cuff, it's never a good thing as a pitcher. You want to hear Tommy John. <laughs> There's been a flood of Tommy John this spring. Yeah. Um, but even as a pitcher, you'd rather hear Tommy John than anything with your shoulder. And so, you know, I said, what can I do? Can I rehab it? Can I have surgery on it? <laughs> and they said, well, you need to have surgery. But the bad news is that it's a two-year rehabilitation from this surgery, and with how severe the damage is, we give you about a 5% chance of ever pitching in the big leagues. So I went from literally having a 3-5 year array, having my best season ever, to the next day, literally my career being over. <clears throat> and so that was, that was tough on me uh, when they shut me down. We never told the media just because we didn't even know how to handle it, uh, and it pretty much destroyed my trade value. Wow. And so, uh, you know, as a player, you know, I, I spent my whole life in the game, and, sorry, uh, it was really tough to just hear that news and just know, wow, my career might be over right now. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they shut me down. We decided, you know, okay, if I don't have surgery, do I have any chance right now of rehabbing this thing? And they said, well, we don't really know, but we might as well try. <laughs> so I went from literally being a good major league pitcher to fighting for my career overnight. And so the Royals, you know, I'm very thankful. I, I will always be. Gave me a chance. They offered me another contract. Uh, I came back for 2010 rehabbed the hardest I've ever rehabbed all offseason and came back and if you look at my stats if you look at just all my peripherals I wasn't nearly as good 
there was a noticeable change at the start of 2010. Um, I'll never forget. I was giving up almost a home run a game uh, just because I was getting tired at the end of the games. I was leaving balls up. It was really just my shoulder giving out as the games wore on. And so that was uh, <clears throat> me, that was just a really, really tough year. And, um, you know, it kind of culminated. I had, I'll never forget, I had a horrible start in Cincinnati. Um, I just, I couldn't even throw anymore. And it got to the point later in the year, I actually uh, <clears throat> took me out of my last start in Chicago. I took myself out because I just, I just knew it was over. And so I told Ned, I was like, you know, I, this isn't what's best for the team. It's not what's best for the fans. And so uh, that was kind of it. You know, that was my last game. And, you know, I, I didn't really know what to do after that. And having been in the game my whole life, <clears throat> it was really tough to just hang it up. And I really didn't know what to do after that. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of the story that was never told. Huh. Um, yeah, I didn't know any of that. It, so this day, I get pretty emotional about it because, um, you know, I, I know it left a bad taste in the fans' mouth because I wasn't a good pitcher. Nah, in I, don't, I don't think it did at all, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, I, I love the game. I love the fans. I love Kansas City. <laughs> so it was, it was just a tough year for me. How, how's your arm doing now? Did you ever end up having to have surgery, you know, after you shut it down? And is it okay now? You know, I, I never elected to do the surgery. Um, just because it was a two-year rehab to get it back to full strength. They said I could play golf. <laughs> uh, but even if I throw a football in the backyard nowadays, it it still is really, really sore the next day. So it's kind of a bummer. Um, hopefully I can throw a BP to my son someday. Uh, but as far as pitching competitively, that's, that's kind of why I just disappeared. Um, I really – the injury was so severe that I couldn't do anything, and – they just said, even if, if we reconstruct it, you'll probably never be a major league pitcher again. And so I just really didn't want to go down that road and just have that disappointment of going through all that hard work and probably having it never pay off. Um, so that's that's why I kind of disappeared and kind of fell off the table and uh, nobody heard from me again <laughs> just because I was just trying to deal with how suddenly my career ended. Yeah, that kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Luke Hudson. Remember the stuff he went through? That was, yeah, yeah. Luke was a good friend, and um, you know, as a pitcher, you kind of accept the fact that at some point your career could just end overnight. Uh, but when it actually does, it's really hard to take, just because you've been to thousands of baseball practices, you've invested your whole life in the game. And then all of a sudden, the next day, you just can't do it anymore. And it's not like a hitter where you can just take more swings and your bat eventually just gets too slow and your eyes aren't as sharp as they used to be and your body doesn't run as fast. With a pitcher, literally from one throw to the next, they can just all be over. And so it's it's tough to accept, but you know I'm thankful for every opportunity that Kansas City gave me and the Mets gave me. And I love the fans. That's why I finally jumped back on Twitter a couple months ago. I... Uh, it was really hard for me to watch the game, and um, it's why I didn't try and get right back into broadcasting or coaching or something like that. I really had to take some time off just because it was too painful to even watch a game or listen to a broadcast. Um, but I just love the game too much, and I love getting on there and talking with the fans. And um, 
you know, I'm really looking forward to, to doing something in the game. And I, I, I've turned down a couple professional coaching jobs uh, recently uh, just because I have some big plans for what I'm going to do in the game. Can you say anything about that, or are we going to have to wait for that? Uh, it, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I've already formed a business, and I, you know, I have a passion for kids, and, um, you know, I was never very physically talented in the game, uh, but I pushed myself to get the most out of my ability, and I think that's the true measurement of success as an athlete. Um, every year, teams have tens of thousands of kids to pick from and draft, um, but nobody ever really talks about the kids that didn't make it, that weren't drafted, or who even are a low-round guy and go play a little bit in the minor leagues, and then nobody ever really hears about them again. You know, my heart goes out to those guys. And I also see the guys that do have the talent that never really pan out, and everybody kind of wonders why. Um, so I've just done tons of research and applied what I've learned, and I've uh, gotten together with a lot of really smart people in the game, and we're going to be coming out with uh, a lot of sabermetrics and traditional coaching um, and really bringing it out there to the kids and giving them the same opportunity to have success that uh, the, game gave, the game gave me. That's so, great. Really That's excited great. about that. I'm probably going to be launching that later in 2014. Great. Now, something, I just have another question. You mentioned the kids that even make it to the low minor leagues and, and kind of, you know, don't, don't make it too far. I think one of your brothers was like that, right? A couple games for rookie ball. Was it the, was it the Mariners? And, and how's the, your other brother pitch at what, Stanford? How are they doing these days? Yeah, my, my four brothers were both victims of Tommy John. Oh. And once they had Tommy John, they were never the same. And uh, my brother spent a couple years rehabbing his arm with the Mariners and never really got healthy. And then my other brother uh, really never got healthy again while at Stanford after he had his surgery. And it, it just shows you how devastating an arm injury is to a pitcher. You know, I, I keep watching guys get hurt, uh, having these Tommy Johns. Uh, this year in 2014, and you know, I just I just pray that they have a chance to pitch again because I know how tough it is when you don't get another chance to pitch again. What are your thoughts on pitch count and, and, and how it leads to injuries? You know, and how the old how do the old school guys avoid it? I mean, nobody seems to know the answer to that. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, having had a dad who pitched 160, 170 pitches in a game, <laughs> right, and still managed to pitch 15 years in the big leagues, uh, I can remember. He played in the Alaskan League in college, and he he pitched and won three starts in the same weekend and also got two wins in relief. He had five wins in one weekend. <laughs> Good grief. Um, and so the mentality was just different. It's just strange because how did those guys do it? Right. And nowadays, you know, pitchers just go down like flies. And I think it has to do a lot with the strength training, um, a lot with the plyometrics. I think kids nowadays – are more like um, hot rods where, you know, you're, you're built to be a sprinter and go out there and pitch a max effort for a very short amount of time as opposed to being a, a longer-distance workhorse type of pitcher. I think that's just how the game's evolved. Pitchers are more specialized. So I, you're never going to see a kid in the minor leagues nowadays go out and throw 150 pitches. Just It's not going to happen. Um, I didn't even get to pitch more than seven innings until I got to the major leagues. So there was it was strange pitching in the minor leagues 
and never really going deep into a game, and all of a sudden getting the big leagues where it's a lot more difficult, and all of a sudden having that expectation of going into the eighth or ninth inning if you're pitching well, because I'd never done it before. And so it's it's weird how the game has changed, but as a pitcher, you kind of just have to roll with it. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to change. I think that 100 pitch count is really going to be the limit for a long time. We're talking to Brian Bannister in Clubhouse Conversation. You've been real generous with your time. Got a couple quick last questions here. So when you think back to your time in a, in a Royals uniform, do you have a, a favorite game or a favorite moment? Can you pick out one single one when you when you think back to your four years here in KC? Yeah, you know, I think a favorite moment, um, my dad actually got to throw out the first pitch to me in Arizona on Father's Day. And I know that was, that was really special to him. Uh, my brothers were there, too. So that was a favorite moment. I got to catch him at home play. He threw me a nasty cutter and almost took off my thumb. Um, but that was a favorite moment. And then a favorite game, uh, I think I'll always remember the one uh, shutout I threw in Oakland. Uh, that was a lot of fun. There's, there's nothing like throwing um, a complete game in the big leagues and your catcher runs out and gives you a big hug. And, you know, you're not in the dugout icing your arm. You're actually out there on the field and, you know, that's it. You did the whole thing, and it's so rare nowadays that uh, that was a, that was a really good feeling, and so that was probably my favorite game in the big leagues. You mentioned your dad a second ago. That just brought back another funny memory of of when uh, the TV announcers, you know, Lefevre and Split Orf and, and Ryan said that your dad said, "Oh, I love watching Split and the announcers." <laughs> he didn't know Ryan by name. Do you remember that? I I, I remember people talking about it. Yeah, but uh, you know, I I love those guys. Um, <laughs> you know, regardless regardless. Of anybody's opinion on any member of the media, uh, you know, it's, it's great having conversations with anybody in the game of baseball because it's just a shared experience. They each have stories. They each have memories. They each have unique relationships. And as you meet more people in the game of baseball, uh, your knowledge of the game and just your enjoyment of it just continues to grow. And so, you know, I, I love talking to all those guys. I love talking to Denny Matthews just – it's just great getting to know people in baseball. And then when, when people get on the air, they got to do their job. And depending on where you are, you know, if you have to be critical of the Royals or supportive of the Royals or you're just a color commentator, you know, you fulfill a role. But behind the scenes, I really just enjoy talking to everybody in the game of baseball. So talk to the fans here in KC before we let you go. The 2014 season kind of off to a shaky start. There's plenty of season left, you know. Lots of time, and, and you know there's been at least one team every single year to start off four and seven and make the playoffs the last three years, I believe. So, but you know, talking to the fans and talking about the Royals, how do we how do we keep the faith, and, and how do you assess this team and their chances of postseason this year? Young room for the team. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to Dayton in spring training, and I, I think just the requirement with small market teams in today's game is that. Uh, it's all about developing starting pitching in-house and then having uh, one or two stud hitters come through the system just, just with the salary inflation and everything that's going on. So, you know, we, we need a guy like Moustakis uh, to hit. Um, we need Billy Butler to be Billy Butler. I think, I think Gordon and Hosmer have established themselves as, as being the guys um, and so all those guys need to be what they can be, and I, and I know they can, uh, but they definitely need to click. Uh, I love having Shields at the front of the rotation. I, I thought losing Hochaver was devastating just because 
he was such a different reliever in the second half of last year than he was as a starter. I mean, you look at his pitch mix, his velocity, everything about him. It was like he was born to be a reliever. And so, uh, you know, people get in arguments about his salary or whatever. The guy was a stud last year, and I loved watching him pitch out of the pen. Uh, and Holland was tremendous. So, you know, it's, it's tough to lose Hoach Haver, but I think if, if Moose can be Moose and the other guys that have already established themselves uh, can just be what they need to be, I, I think the team can be good and have a shot at it in the postseason. But uh, you definitely won't, don't want to stumble for much longer or uh, it's tough to catch up. Yeah, when should we be concerned, you know, as fans? At what point do we kind of get a little nervous? You know, you look at a team like the Brewers this year, and they just got off to a hot start. It, it's always better to get off to a hot start than a cold start just because the expectations are so high at the beginning of a season. Everything is under a microscope, and it's just a lot easier as a player if you're not on the hot seat right away. And so um, you definitely don't want to extend this thing. You want to get some momentum going, and you want to get some wins and get above 500 and just play some solid baseball. It, it, it really all comes down to the end. If you can stay in the race, it's whoever's hot at the end. Because even if you have a great season, a great win-loss record, if your wins came at the beginning of the season and you're cold going into the playoffs, you, you just really don't have much of a chance. It always seems like the hottest team that blows through September really just runs through the playoffs and dominates, and that's the kind of team you want to be. So it's, even if you can just tread water, you know, slightly above 500 for most of the season and get hot at the end, I think that's the ideal place to be. Anything else you'd like to add before we let you go? Uh, yeah, I've already been interacting with a lot of the fans on Twitter, and uh, you know, don't don't get down on your team. Uh, I, I appreciate the fans so much, and they're so dedicated, and I've enjoyed meeting so many of them over the years. Um, I enjoy rooting alongside them. <laughs> You'll see me. I'm, I'm the biggest Royals fan out there. I won't say I'm the, I'm the biggest, but uh, I'll, I'll join with anybody in rooting for the team. And I, I really look forward to the Royals having a lot of success in the future, and uh, I'll be there rooting for them. 